You know, it's amazing to me how often we sing songs, and we don't really mean it, do we? We don't really mean it. We just sing in the words. My prayer is that when we sang that song, that we really meant it. You can have the world. Just give me Jesus. And it will be reflective of how we live our lives. You know, Jesus tells us what it means to love him. And he says this, if you love me, keep my commandments. We keep his commandments because we love him, because he loved us first. It's not about legalism. It's, it's not about living a religious life. It's about doing what he wants because we love him. And so it's my prayer that when we sang that song, that was our prayer. Give me Jesus. Take the world. Give me Jesus. Let's kind of be disconnected, as it were, so that we can be a witness to the world. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we so dearly want to love you. Our flesh does get in the way, Lord. We are prevented so often. But we thank you for your spirit who dwells in our lives, every one of us here who knows you as Lord and Savior. Your spirit lives within us, giving us the want to and giving us the power to. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And it takes away our excuses also. And so for that, Lord, we, we thank you sheepishly, but we thank you because we have no excuse to to live our own lives now. We are owned by you. You bought us with a price, and that price is your precious blood. So I pray, Lord, in light of that, that you will help us today as we open up this passage of Scripture, this very practical, powerful passage. Give us understanding. Help us, Lord, to discern exactly what's going on with it. And then, Lord, equip us to be the witness you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Trevin Wax is a senior vice president of theology and communications at Lifeway Christian Resources. He's also a visiting professor at Wheaton College. When the cartoon Frozen came out, he commented on a blog entry after he and his family went to go see it, and he gave his opinion about it. And after he gave a few uh, opening remarks about the plot of the movie, um, he talks about the song, let it go. How many of you have not heard the song, Let It Go? <laughs> we have all done this. Oh, Jason, has, okay. you're blessed. <laughs> now, I know you have two girls, so I know that you heard it. So. so don't lie in church. Anyway, But he writes this about this song. He says, if there ever was a song that summed up the Disney doctrine of being true to yourself and following your feelings, no matter the consequences, it's this song, Letting It Go, or Let It Go. Thousands of little girls across the country are singing this song. It's a manifesto of sorts, a call to cast off restraint, rebel against unrealistic expectations, and instead be true to whatever you feel most deeply inside. What's ironic is that the movie's storyline goes against the message of this song. When the princess decides to let it go, 
She brings terrible evil into the world. The fallout from her actions is devastating. No right, no wrong, no rules for me is the sin that isolates the princess and freezes her kingdom. It's only after sacrificial love saves her from the effects of the curse that the princess is free to redirect her passion and her power, not in turning away and not in slamming the door and expressing herself, but in channeling her powers for the good of her people. If there is a moral to the story of Frozen, it's that letting go is self-centered and damaging. What's needed is for our distinctive gifts to be stewarded and shaped by redemptive love. Now, I'm not a fan of Frozen. I don't even think I've even seen the movie. But, and I'm assuming that this is a good synopsis of, of, what he, of what it's all about. But what is the point of beginning this sermon with a song that embraces a self-centered and damaging message? Well, it has everything to do with the vast difference between how people of the world see things in this life and how Christians are supposed to see things and respond to the things in this life. See, the world's version of let it go wreaks havoc. God's version of let it go preserves and changes lives forever. In our passage for today, we're going to see Paul finishing up answering the question that the Corinthians had that started way back in chapter 8. And the question is, what about meat? What about food being offered to idols? We saw over the past three messages that Paul was concerned with the lack of unity in this area, just like so many other areas as he's been addressing in this letter about lack of unity. See, for Paul, disunity was a big deal in the Corinthian church, and he addressed it over and over and over again. We saw how there were two camps regarding this issue of idle meats and eating it, whether or not to eat it. I called these two camps brother knowledge and also brother conscience. And they held to points of view that were polar opposites of one another. And again, this issue is a non-gospel issue. It's important, but it was a non-gospel issue. We saw how through Paul's own testimony and example, he told them clearly that they were free in Christ to strongly hold their positions, that they were free to serve one another, that they could hold their positions about this, but they needed to have their opinions take a back seat to maintain their unity between one another. With brother knowledge, He was free. See, he was convinced that he was able to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. He tried to convince everybody in the church that that he was the one that had the answers. They needed to go his way. See, this was a liberating way, according to brother knowledge in that camp. After all, idols are not a thing. And so how can a piece of meat be off limits just because people were so naive about the reality of the freedom that Christ brings? Brother Conscience and his camp, on the other hand, they were genuinely saved just like those in the Brother Knowledge camp. Their conviction about this issue was if they were to eat the meat that was sacrificed to the idols, then they would actually be partaking in the religious ritual and therefore being guilty of committing idolatry. 
Now, Brother Conscience took this issue to new levels in avoiding idolatry and probably left no stone unturned in making sure that he was not guilty when he was sitting down at the table. And though we don't normally live life wondering if the meat that we buy or enjoy from those who invite us over for dinner was recently used in a religious ritual, how we need to hear the principles and the commands right here in this passage through Paul's wise, divinely inspired counsel that genuinely liberates us. As we know, over the past number of weeks, we've dealt with our personal scruples, our personal moral standards over the COVID issue and also the killing of uh, uh, George Floyd and all those things that surround that. And because life is life and people are people, we all have our opinions about these matters. Would you agree with that? We all do, don't we? How can we not? <laughs> Look at Facebook. Yes, yes. At the heart of the issues in our world, we need to ask, as people who are following the same Christ, will these issues get in the way of our followership of Christ? See, as we know, part of being faithful in our followership of Christ is that we live together in love and unity, and that we as a united group of people following Jesus, that we present a good witness to the non-believers. So today, we're going to take a very practical look at exactly how to avoid landing into and staying in the pit of non-gospel issues to the detriment of the body of Christ. Now, I'm convinced that we can indeed live lives of no worries in non-gospel issues, sort of like the popular song called Hakuna uh, uh, Matata. Remember that song, Hakuna Matata of, uh, of Lion King days? Of course, that was another popular Disney movie. But let's imagine in our passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to chapter 11, verse 1, let's kind of visualize a building. Let's call it a freedom tower that's purchased or that's perched upon three pillars, all placed upon God's rock-solid foundation of the truth found in verse 25. Now, this truth, verse 25, is a quote from the Old Testament. Psalm 24, verse 1, where he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's the rock-solid truth that we're going to be you know, building things on today, building our freedom tower. And the first pillar holding up our freedom tower is found in verses 23 and 24, where Paul tells the Corinthians and us to seek the good of one's neighbor, specifically one's non-Christian neighbor. We're talking witness here. The second pillar, girding up our freedom tower, is an example that Paul uses in verses 25 to 30, where he encourages us to let things go. Because of the truth of Psalm 24, 1, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, we as his followers can relax and we can trust him in childlike faith. This is God's world, is it not? It's his world. He owns it. And the third pillar of God's glorious freedom tower is found in verses 31 to chapter 11, verse 1, where God through Paul commands us to do all to his glory even with the mundane but vital activities of eating food and drinking drink and how that shakes out in our relationships between one another and also between 
us and non-Christians. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, and let's begin right there. All things are lawful, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, in these verses, Paul gives a small but powerful rebuke to the philosophy of the, of the day in Corinth. See, and this can pretty much sum up many of our attitudes and our culture as well. All things are lawful. That's what they held to. Of course, this Corinthian meme was not divine wisdom. This statement embodied, I am free to pursue my own interests, which also embodied the errors and the sins that Paul dealt with throughout this whole first letter. It's like what the descendants of Israel experienced when the Lord delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. See, God's people were so often guilty of living out their mean. Something like this. You can take Israel out of Egypt, but it's much more difficult to take Egypt out of Israel. And what happened just a few short weeks after their delivery out of the hand of the Egyptians? What were they doing out there in the desert? Even while God was writing the Ten Commandments with his own finger on the tablets of stone, they were busy breaking the first two commandments. These are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. May we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts and minds, not seeking to pursue our own interests, but to consider whether our actions will be helpful and will be able to build others up. And Paul crystallizes this when he says, let no one seek his own good, but for that of his neighbor. And this sets the tone for the entire passage we're going to talk about today. Now, Paul grants here that whether one is in the brother knowledge camp or in the brother conscience camp regarding the food to idols, there is nothing inherently sinful about holding to the scruples, about holding to the personal morality standards that they have with these things. Members of both camps are now free to strongly hold to their positions. And again, these are non-gospel issues. These are non-gospel opinions. In this case, it's about what to eat or what not to eat. That is uh, what is at, at stake here. What's that issue here? It, as far as them in their minds, pleasing the Lord. Should I eat? Should I not eat? And how I'm going to hold to my position is how I'm going to be pleasing to the Lord. But now, though they held to these positions, polar opposites, they both had the same problem, whether brother knowledge camp or brother conscience camp. They had the same problem. They got preoccupied with their issue. For brother knowledge, he lets everybody know that they can live in the same freedom that he has. For after all, idol is nothing. Therefore, food sacrificed to idols carries with it no curse. Brother Conscience, being more sensitive to such matters, feels compelled to do his research. And just he just can't bring himself to just trusting and that he can eat these things. He can eat this food. He just can't go there. So what happens? They're both wrapped around the axle very tightly regarding this non-gospel issue. And they're at odds with one another. 
But Paul offers true freedom among the brothers in so many words. He says something like this. Guys, it doesn't matter what your opinion is about this issue. You don't have to broadcast it. You can kind of keep things to yourself. What matters is that you seek the good of someone else, not whether you can express your well-reasoned opinions on why you cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols or whether you can decisively win an argument promoting the freedom that you can eat it. Love is far and away much more concerned with the welfare of others than to satisfy your own scruples about a certain issue as important as those issues are to you. But later, as Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, and he wrote Romans after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he addressed the same issue about meat being sacrificed to idols. And upon further reflection to them, Paul's counsel in Romans 14.22 says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So, being others-centered and not so much an expert on your own spiritual hobby horse is the first pillar upon which our freedom tower is built. Seek the good of one's neighbor is what Paul wanted them to focus on regarding issues that may be important but not essential in the Christian life, like the, like the cardinal doctrines, things we must all agree on in order to be a Christians, and these essential practices that we need to adhere to, again, in order to be called Christians. Now, in verses 25 to 30, Paul goes to the heart of this discussion by painting a hypothetical but very plausible scenario. And here he's going to help the Christians in Corinth and us as well to put God's sovereignty right up front and center in our hearts, in our minds. And here is God's sovereignty expressed this way. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So let's read these verses. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace, Paul says, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, in other words, if you want to go, go do that. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced for what that which I give thanks? Well, notice how massively Paul addresses both the knowledge and the conscience camps. But first he addresses brother conscience in verses 25 through verse 29. But again, let's look at verses 25 and 26 to kind of see the background and the setup for this. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Again, why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Notice how Paul sets the stage before he actually goes into the scenario. Paul intends for this stage to be set to serve as a motivation for their opinions, for their underlying actions, that they would be pleasing to the Lord by taking those actions. Whether one was part of the conscience camp or the knowledge camp, 
Paul tells them this, implicitly trust the Lord, implicitly trust him. It's as if Paul is saying to them, listen, guys, you've gotten so tightly wrapped around the axle over this meat sacrifice to idols thing that you've forgotten something, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so Paul urges both members of both camps, believe God's word over the superstitions and even the evil forces that are out there that exist. See, brother's conscience job is to turn not, not to turn over so many stones regarding his scruples. Don't find out. Don't dig so deep to try to find out what, where this uh, particular cut of meat came from. Brother Knowledge's job is to tone down his rhetoric and to stop being uh, and proclaiming so loudly about his freedom over being able to eat this. And Paul is asking here from both camps a huge commitment. And this commitment can be risky. It can be very scary. In other words, trust the Lord. Quit being so wrapped so tightly around the axle around this. I'm reminded of a scene of a scene in one of uh, Indiana Jones's movies. Remember those movies? Seen those? Remember this scene? He was in a cave, right? He was right at the edge of a very big precipice. And in order to accomplish what he needed to do, he had to somehow get over this very, very deep hole. And he was standing there. And as he stood there, and, and he was declaring that what he needed to do was impossible. He didn't know how he was going to do it. It was certain death as far as he was concerned. So what did Jones do? He had to let go of his fear and step out. He could not go back. There's no way he could. And in a masterful way that seldom comes out in real life, but almost always comes out in the movies, Indiana Jones put his foot out. And what did he discover? He was on solid ground, solid footing. And here's where Paul is asking for both brother conscience and brother knowledge to let things go. They were to put into the action of truth of Psalm 24, 1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And like any good teacher, Paul now illustrates what it means for brother conscience to apply this truth to his life. Let's look at verse 27 again. If one of the unbelievers invites you to go to dinner and you're disposed to go, in other words, if you want to go, go do it, but eat whatever is set in front of you without raising questions with regard to the conscience. Now, I can hear it now, can't you? If you were brother conscience, what would you be thinking? What do you mean, Paul? I can't ask this question. What? Didn't you just say earlier in this letter that whatever was offered to idols is a sacrifice to demons? Are you saying, are you contradicting yourself now, Paul? What's going on here? But here's what Paul's doing. In a word, he is telling Brother Conscience to let it go and to trust the Lord that he's not partaking in idolatry on the basis of the truth he just laid out. Let's look at some of these details. Go with me here with this scenario of Brother Conscience and this non-Christian host. Brother Conscience has accepted a gracious invitation to have dinner with a non-Christian. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? And non-Christian, friend, is footing the bill. 
What a gracious gesture. Isn't that great? Even in our country, who would turn down a meal that someone was going to be paying for? All the trimmings, the fancy dinner. Now, Brother Conscience walks in. He sits down. He has no knowledge where this food has come from, okay? He is in the dark. He is ignorant of where it came from. But remember the heart of Brother Conscience. A couple of things going on here. First, as a Christian, he wants to be a godly witness, so he accepts the invitation of the non-Christian host. And when he did that, he was appealing to this whole concept of hospitality. Now, in our country, it's, it's, in our culture, it's a pretty big deal, but back then, it was so much more of a big deal. You just did not turn down hospitality. It was a sacred duty to accept and to involve yourself in this. Second, What would dinner be like if Brother Conscience would automatically refuse the dinner that was set before him? What would happen to the witness between him and the non-Christian host? I guess it would go south pretty quickly, don't you think? And third, Brother Conscience does not know where the dinner came from. Again, how would it be for a non-Christian host to endure an interrogation from somebody like that about where the meal came from? It wouldn't be a good thing, would it? But now, was it lawful for Brother Conscience to pepper uh, his host with these kinds of questions, to dig, to interrogate? Sure, it's lawful. That was the meme of the day. All things are lawful for me. But the question is, would it be helpful in the witnessing relationship? Would it be to build up the non-Christian host to help him? Probably not. Would you agree? So how can Brother Conscience survive his nightmare scenario? How can he do it? The earth is the Lord's. Not demons, not the powers of darkness, not Caesar, and everything in it to include the dinner that is now set in front of Brother Conscience. In other words, Brother Conscience, let it go. Cling to the truth. The bottom line is, eat the steak. Brother Conscience, you don't know where it came from. So trust God's goodness here in this situation. But what if, Paul says, what if someone says, and I'm interpreting this as the host is saying this, what if he says, this meat has been offered to idols? What do you do then? See, until then, nothing was said about it. Brother Conscience was in the dark. He was ignorant. And that's a good thing. Paul implies, hey, if, you're, if you don't have the information, go with what you got. Trust that God is good and that he is in charge. The earth is his, including this meal in front of you. Paul implied that it was okay. But now that Brother Conscience has a new piece of knowledge, everything changes. True? What was Brother Conscience to do when he hears that the meat was now used in pagan religious sacrifices? Let's look at the end of verse 28 and part of 29 to find the answer. Do not eat it, Paul says, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Ah, but he says, I do not mean your conscience, but his conscience. Given new information. Brother Conscience now must act, or more appropriately, refrain from acting. He must not eat the food, 
But why should he refrain? Because Brother Conscience' scruples are now informed, that he now kind of gets off the hook, and so now he doesn't have to eat it? Is it because of his very strong opinion to not eat idle meat that he should refrain? No. It is because of the one who made the statement, the one who invited him to dinner. That's why he should refrain. Not because of himself, but because of the one who said it. Make sense? See, there was a reason why the host stated that the food was sacrificed to idols. And why do you think that the host would make the statement, especially when he did make the statement? So let's play it out. Imagine that you're there. You just sat down at the table with the one who provided you the dinner. Your host knows that you are a Christian. He does not inform you that the dinner that's in front of you was sacrificed to idols until the plate was placed right in front of you at that time. Why then would he say that to you at that time, at that point? Well, it could be a test. Maybe he's thinking something like, all right, Christian, you said you're a follower of Christ. Let me see if my applying a little pressure to you would make you compromise. See, you, you say that you should not be eating meat, sacrificed idols. Your God tells you this. Let me see if I can catch you in a gotcha moment. Or perhaps host really was curious as to why Brother Conscience would not be doing this. He has a problem, and, and he was wanting to know. He's kind of curious about it. Or perhaps the host really didn't know anything of it or didn't, didn't think about it when he invited him to come. And then at the very last minute, he thought, wait a minute, and then kind of gives him a, a watch out warning, just kind of out of the goodness of his heart, so to speak. So which scenario do you think is the more appropriate, is, is the one that's most likely? I think it's the first one. I think it was a test. See, it wasn't cool to be a true Christian back in the first century. See, remember what the Corinthian culture was like. To be a Corinthian meant you were sexually immoral. That's what it meant. And that's what the, the culture of the day was. But Christians were known to not be sexually immoral. They were known to be morally pure. And they were probably accused of being atheists as well. For Christians did not have statues of Jesus when they worshipped, like all the other religions had their statues. And so here they were. But the point is, there was a reason for the non-Christian to raise the issue. But he didn't, but Paul didn't tell us what that issue was. And since Brother Conscience did not know why the host said it, Paul said for the Christian now to refrain, don't eat of it. Again, it wasn't because Brother Conscience finally was able to get off the hook selfishly. No, it was because of what the host said to him. It was now a sacrifice to idols. And so for the sake of maintaining a good witness to the non-Christian, for his good, not because Brother Conscience' curiosity was satisfied, therefore Paul said, refrain from eating. Obviously, Brother Conscience would have to explain himself. You know, he says, okay, you know, it's been sacrificed to idols. Now what does Brother Conscience get a chance to do? Get to give a witness to his non-Christian host. I think it's pretty cool. Now, he may have to even risk the relationship, but he's now able to say it because now he needs to say it because he's got a new information. But now notice how Paul suddenly pivots and addresses brother knowledge. 
He dealt with brother conscience. Now he's dealing with brother knowledge. Let's look again at the end of verse 29 and 30. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? See, until now, Paul was concerned with brother knowledge's loud and proud proclamation to brother conscience. Hey, you got to come my way. You know, idols are nothing. You can, you can do away with, with your scruples. Come to my way. It's liberating. And so now Paul reminds brother knowledge that if you were in that same situation with a non-Christian, you are to tone down your rhetoric. You are to say, you know what? I need to limit my liberty even before them. Paul, in, sense, in essence, says, for the good of your non-Christian neighbor, brother knowledge, limit your liberty. If he brings up the issue of the food being offered to idols, it's not for your sake, but for that of the non-Christian. See, he's still tied up in the tentacles of darkness. What would happen, brother knowledge, if you were to go and lambast this guy who's, in the, who's caught up in, the, in, the, in darkness? What would he do? What would that relationship be like now? You would blow your chance to witness to this man. So like Brother Conscience, could Brother Knowledge push his agenda? Could he actually say, yes, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to just lambast this guy? He could. Why? Because everything was lawful. But would it be helpful? Would it be to build him up? No, probably not. Would Brother Knowledge just steamrolling over his dinner hosts of the non-existence of idols build him up? It would probably destroy the relationship if it was done at that, in that scenario at that time. Now, of course, whether it be Brother Knowledge or Brother Conscience, there comes a time when the truth must be shared. Isn't that true? All of us, we need to do this. And just like Paul's admonition to Brother Knowledge to limit his liberty toward his brother Conscience, in the non-gospel issue, Paul is telling him to limit his liberty even toward a non-Christian for the sake of a witness. Make sense? So the first pillar upon which our freedom tower is built is the truth of followers of Jesus need to seek the good of their neighbor. The second pillar is to refuse to engage, to let it go when it comes to non-gospel issues for the sake of maintaining a witness to a non-Christian. See, the follower of Christ is to cling to the truth that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. See, it's not the demons. It's not the powers of darkness. It's not Caesar that controls the world. It's, it's not theirs. It's the Lord. And we don't have to engage in issues that are non-gospel related. We don't have to communicate. We don't have to weigh in. In other words, we can let it go, can we not? We don't have to try and pribe and probe and risk risk witnessing relationships for the sake of our own religiosity, just to weigh in of our opinion. We trust that the Lord is sovereign. And only when we're informed of new information about a certain issue is then we can change our minds and perhaps act on the new knowledge. But we must always keep in mind that we are to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. Keep those things in mind as we do this. The third pillar of holding up our freedom tower is found in verses 31 to chapter 11, verse 1. So whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This third pillar undergirding our Freedom Tower is very powerful. Its strength is supernatural. In verse 31, Paul says, in essence, that when a follower of Jesus chooses to let a non-Christian have his opinion over a non-gospel issue, that is strength there. And how it's strength is because he is now allowed to maintain that relationship with the witness, with the non-Christian. He can let the non-Christian have his opinion. That's okay. We don't have to engage. We can let it go. See, a Christian oftentimes glorifies the Lord often by what he does not say, just as much as he offers as he glorifies the Lord by what he does say. But now, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say, though. I'm not saying that we should never give a verbal witness to a non-Christian because we need to talk to them about their need to repent of their sin, their need to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. What I'm talking about is issues other than that, like even issues of morality, issues of what's going on in our, in our world even today, like, for example, the COVID issue, or even now with Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all things associated with George Floyd. And as ratcheted up and as the rhetoric is and as the emotions are, it's tempting, isn't it? And it's even demanded by many that we weigh in, that we are to give our opinion on this, that we are to divide ourselves into camps. And what happens when we do? We get labeled, and now, we, and now we're not able to give a witness in many cases. And my question is, do we need to weigh in with these things? Can we let it go? Can we disengage? We'll talk about more of that in just a second. In verse 32, Paul, though, Paul delivers a command. Actually, God does through him. He says, give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Give no offense. This word, give no offense, means don't or or be without blame. Be blameless. It doesn't mean don't be sinless. Because we can't be sinless, it just means that we are not that, that we can be blamed for things. It means that no one can point the finger at us over persistent, you know, non-Christian attitudes and things that we do. In other words, don't be the kind of Christian who, when they see you coming, would rather go the other way because of the abrasiveness of your spirit. Let's be as winsome as possible to both our brothers and sisters in Christ and non-Christians as well. See, James speaks living our lives by godly wisdom. Here's how he describes it in James 3, 17 and 18. He says, But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Aren't those great words? Amazing. Good stuff. We can do this. Christians have access to this. And this, my brothers and sisters, is fleshing out divine wisdom. 
It shows itself in being peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere, and even seeks to make peace. That's divine wisdom. Isn't that the kind of life that would be attractive to the non-Christian in the midst of all the chaos? I think it would be. Finally, verses 32 to chapter 11, verse 1, we see Paul's personal testimony. Once again, he lets the Corinthian Christians know that his conviction is to be pleasing to everyone. Why? So he can maintain the relationship and draw the non-Christians up close to him so he can be an effective witness. And Paul sums up the discussion of giving up his rights, of actively serving others as a worthy example to follow. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what do we do with this? The foundation of freedom is that we cling like a child to the fact that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Because the Lord owns the earth, we can relax, can we not? We can let go of the firm grip we so often find ourselves having when we look at the issues of the day. Because we can seek the welfare of others, we don't have to convince others of our point of view. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I could care less about your personal issue, about your personal view of COVID virus. And I'm sure that you could care less about mine. But let me apply our need to make the gospel attractive to all the uprest, I mean, upheaval and all the unrest of today concerning George Floyd. Here is the fact of life. First of all, the bad news. Racism, as we've come to understand it, will never go away. That's the bad news. You might find it that, as a pastor, I would say that kind of thing because everybody's talking about, we've got to eradicate this. We've got to make it go away. It's not going to go away. It's with us. It will continue to be with us. Why? Because racism, as we understand it, is an issue of the heart. The issue of sin in the heart. See, James issues or addresses the issue of discrimination in the second chapter of his letter. It's couched, though, in terms of church members showing favoritism to those of a different economic status. Hey, you rich person, come over here. You have the honored place. You person who's poor, back in the back. That's discrimination. That's, as it were, a racist sort of thing. James sums up favoritism in one word, sin. And since sin will be with us until Jesus comes back, I submit to you that racism will not be eradicated in this life. It won't be eradicated until Jesus comes back and sits up his throne. In the meantime, how is any sin, any sin, including the sin of racism, as we've come to understand it, how can we battle this? The gospel of Christ. That's how we can do this. A person who has a racist orientation is in need of salvation that only Jesus can give. And and I'm sorry if a person says, I'm a Christian, but I'm a racist. That's a contradiction of terms. That is that oxymoron, Trev. We're either a racist or we're a Christian, one or the other. There is no combining the two. And even among Christians, unfortunately, discrimination, racism, racism as we understand it, 
And especially discrimination based on the shade of one's melanin is sin as well. How do we combat this as Christians when it rears its ugly head? We all know, don't we? First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, because this is a sin just like any other sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how can we live in the midst of the chaos of just letting it go? How can we sing a kuna matata, a worry-free philosophy? Be an imitator. But don't be an imitator of the world. Be an imitator of Christ. We refuse to grip the issues of the day too tightly as the world demands that we do. Everybody tells us, we've got to weigh in. We don't have to weigh in. We can let it go. But we follow Jesus. We imitate Him. We cling to Him tightly, not the things of the world. Let's not forget that Paul lived in volatile times, even more chaotic than our own. Do you believe that? This was his testimony. Galatians 6. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to it. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And let me add here, for neither what some consider right nor wrong views of COVID or the George Floyd issue count for anything but a new creation. Let me continue. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, for now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. So how can we let it go? To the glory of God. Three ways. The earth is a fullness, or the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Cling to it. Because we are to seek the good of our non-Christian neighbor and spiritual siblings, do it. Because we are to imitate others who imitate Christ, follow those who genuinely follow him. As a quote so often is said, I need this to, to be reminded. We need to be reminded of this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's give ourselves to what is of true lasting value. The COVID thing is going to go away. These different iterations of racism are going to go away. The only thing that's not going to go away are the souls of people and the Word of God. Let's give ourselves to those things. Let everything else go to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this very practical message. Lord, this is spoken to my own heart, and I'm sure it's spoken to those who've heard this message today. I think all of us, Lord, have, have temptations to weigh in. I know I have over the last few months. And Lord, all of us have temptations to, um, to be discriminatory on things that people can't help. Lord, I pray that you would help us that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would mature us, Lord, into seeing every person as made in your image and therefore every person as equal, regardless of the shade of melanin, 
regardless of how much money a person has or doesn't have, regardless of the things that they have or don't have. Lord, we are all equal at the foot of the cross as brothers and sisters, and we're all equal in this world because you made all of us in your image. Lord, may we repent. May we turn around. May we follow you for any kind of of discriminatory racism issues that we might have. And we give you thanks, Lord, for your forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of repentance. And I pray, Father, as we give, that you help us to give with a heart that's, that's full of gratitude for giving us salvation in Christ. Thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.